What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 6 of The Middle of Things This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter 6 Speculations Mr. Paul, an alert-looking, sharp-eyed little man, whom Viner at once recognized as having been present in the magistrate's court, when Hyde was brought up, smiled as he shook hands with the new visitor. "'You don't know me, Mr. Viner,' he said, "'but I knew your father very well. "'He and I did a lot of business together in our time. "'You haven't followed his profession, I gather.' "'I'm afraid I haven't any profession, Mr. Paul,' answered Viner. "'I'm a student, and a bit, a very little bit, of a writer.' "'Aye, well, your father was a bit in that way, too,' remarked Mr. Paul. "'I remember that he was a great collector of books. "'You have his library, no doubt.' "'Yes, and I'm always adding to it.' said Viner. I shall be glad to show you my additions any time. Mr. Paul turned to the two ladies, waving his hand at Viner. Knew his father most intimately, he said, as if he were guaranteeing the younger man's status. Fine fellow was Stephen Viner. Well, he continued, dropping into a chair and pointing Viner to another, this is a sad business that we've got concerned in, young man. Now, what do you think of the proceedings we've just heard? Your opinion, Mr. Viner, is probably better worth having than anybody's, for you saw this fellow running away from the scene, and you found my unfortunate client lying dead. What, frankly, is your opinion?' "'I'd better tell you something that's just happened,' replied Viner. He went on to repeat the statements which Hyde had just made to Drillford and himself. "'My opinion,' he concluded, "'is that Hyde is speaking the plain truth, that all he really did was, as he affirms, to pick up that ring and run away.' I don't believe he murdered Mr. Ashton, and I'm going to do my best to clear him. He looked around from one listener to another, seeking opinion from each. Mr. Paul maintained a professional imperturbability. Mrs. Killenhall looked mildly excited on hearing this new theory. But from Miss Wickham, Viner got a flash of intelligent comprehension. The real thing is this she said. None of us know anything about Mr. Ashton, really. He may have had enemies. Paul rubbed his chin. The action suggested perplexity. Miss Wickham is quite right, he said. Mr. Ashton is more or less a man of mystery. He'd been here in England two months. His ward knows next to nothing about him except that she was left in his guardianship many a year ago, that he sent her to England to school, and that he recently joined her here. Mrs. Killenhall knows no more than that he engaged her as chaperone to his ward, and that they exchanged references. His references were to his bankers and to me, but neither his bankers nor I know anything of him, except that he was a very well-to-do man. I can tell precisely what his bankers know. It is merely this. He transferred his banking account from an Australian bank to them on coming to London. I saw them this morning on first getting the news." They have about two hundred thousand pounds lying to his credit. That's absolutely all they know about him. All. The Australian bankers would know more, suggested Viner. Precisely, agreed Mr. Paul. We can get news from them in time. But now, what do I know? 
"'No more than this. Mr. Ashton called on me about six or seven weeks ago, told me that he was an Australian who had come to settle in London, that he was pretty well off, and that he wanted to make a will. We drafted a will on his instructions, and he duly executed it. Here it is. Miss Wickham has just seen it. Mr. Ashton has left every penny he had to Miss Wickham.' He told me she was the only child of an old friend of his, who had given her into his care on his death out in Australia some years ago, and that as he, Ashton, had no near relations, he had always intended to leave her all he had. And so he has, without condition or reservation or anything. All is yours, Miss Wickham, and I'm your executor. But now, continued Mr. Paul, how far does this take us towards solving the mystery of my client's death? So far as I can see, next to nowhere— and I am certain of this, Mr. Viner, if we are going to solve it, and if this old school friend of yours is being unjustly accused, and is to be cleared, we must find out more about Ashton's doings since he came to London. The secret lies there. I quite agree, answered Viner, but who knows anything? Mr. Paul looked at the two ladies. That's a stiff question, he said. The bankers tell me that Ashton only called on them two or three times. He called on me not oftener. Neither they nor I ever had much conversation with him. These two ladies should know more about him than anybody, but they seem to know little. Viner, who was sitting opposite to her, looked at Miss Wickham. You must know something about his daily life, he said. What did he do with himself? "'We told you, and the police inspector, near, pretty nearly all we know, last night,' replied Miss Wickham. "'As a rule, he used to go out of a morning, I think, from his conversation. He used to go down to the city. I don't think it was on business. I think he liked to look about him. Sometimes he came home to lunch, sometimes he didn't. Very often he, in the afternoon he took us for motor rides into the country. Sometimes he took us to the theatres. He used to go out a good deal, alone at night. We don't know where.' "'Did he ever mention any club?' asked Mr. Paul. "'No, never,' replied Miss Wickham. "'He was reticent about himself, always very kind and thoughtful and considerate for Mrs. Killenhall and myself, but he was a reserved man.' "'Did he ever have any one to see him?' inquired the solicitor. "'Any man to dine, or anything of that sort?' "'No, not once. No one has ever been—no one has ever even called on him.' said Miss Wickham. We have had two or three dinner-parties, but the people who came were friends of mine, two or three girls whom I knew at school, who are now married and live in London. A lonely sort of man, commented Mr. Paul. Yet he must have known people. Where did he go when he went into the city? Where did he go at night? There must be somebody somewhere who can tell more about him. I think it will be well if I ask for information through the newspapers. There is one matter we haven't mentioned— said Mrs. Killenhall. Just after we got settled down here, Mr. Ashton went away for some days, three or four days. That, of course, may be quite insignificant. "'Do you know where he went?' asked Mr. Paul. "'No, we don't know,' answered Mrs. Killenhall. "'He went away one Monday morning, saying that now everything was in order we could spare him for a few days. He returned on the following Thursday or Friday. I forgot which, but he didn't tell us where he'd been.' "'You don't think any of the servants would know?' asked Mr. Paul. "'Oh, dear me, no,' replied Mrs. Killenhall. "'He was the sort of man who rarely speaks to his servants except when he wanted something.' Mr. Paul looked at his watch and rose. "'Well,' 
he said. "'We shall have to find out more about my late client's habits and whom he knew in London. There may have been a motive for this murder of which we know nothing. Are you coming, Mr. Viner? I should like a word with you.' Viner, too, had risen. He looked at Miss Wickham. "'I hope my aunt called on you this morning,' he asked. "'I was coming with her, but I had to go round to the police station.' "'She did call, and she was very kind indeed. Thank you,' said Miss Wickham. "'I hope she'll come again.' "'We shall both be glad to do anything,' said Viner. "'Please don't hesitate about sending round for me if there's anything at all I can do.' He followed Mr. Paul into the square and turned him towards his own house. "'Come and lunch with me,' he said. "'We can talk over this at our leisure.' "'Thank you, I will.' answered Mr. Paul, very pleased. Between you and me, Mr. Viner, this is a very queer business. I'm quite prepared to believe the story that young fellow Hyde tells. I wish he'd told it straight out in court. But you must see that he's in a very dangerous position, very dangerous indeed. The police, of course, won't credit a word of his tale, not they've got a strong prima facie case against him, and they'll follow it up for all they're worth. The real thing to do, if you're to save him, is to find the real murderer." "'And to do that you will need all your wits. "'If one only had some theory.' "'Viner introduced Mr. Paul to Miss Pankridge "'with the remark that she was something of an authority in mysteries, "'and as soon as they had sat down to lunch, "'told her of Langton Hyde and his statement. "'Just so,' said Miss Pankridge dryly, "'that's much more likely to be the real truth "'than that this lad killed Ashton. "'There's a great deal more in this murder "'than he's on the surface, "'and I dare say Mr. Paul agrees with me.' "'I dare say I do,' assented Mr. Paul. "'The difficulty is how to penetrate "'into the thick cloak of mystery.' "'When I was around there at number seven this morning,' "'observed Miss Pankridge, "'those two talked very freely to me about Mr. Ashton. "'Now, there's one thing struck me at once. "'There must be men in London who knew him. "'He couldn't go out and about, as he evidently did, without meeting men. "'Even if it wasn't in business, he'd meet men somewhere. "'And if I were you, I should invite men who knew him to come forward and tell what they know.' "'It shall be done. Very good advice, ma'am,' said Mr. Paul. "'And there's another thing,' said Miss Pankridge. "'I should find out what can be told about Mr. Ashton, where he came from. "'I believe you can get telegraphic information from Australia within a few hours. "'Why not go to the expense when there's so much at stake? "'Depend upon it, the real secret of this murder lies back in the past, perhaps the far past.' "'That, too, shall be done,' agreed Mr. Paul. "'I shouldn't be surprised if you're right.' "'In my opinion,' remarked Miss Pankridge dryly, the robbing of this dead man was all a blind. Robbery wasn't the motive. Murder was a thing in view. And why? It may have been revenge. Maybe that Ashton had to be got out of the way. And I shouldn't wonder a bit if that isn't at the bottom of it, which is at the top and bottom of pretty nearly everything. And that, ma'am, asked Mr. Paul, who evidently admired Miss Pankridge's shrewd observation, that is what now? Money said Miss Pankridge. Money! The old solicitor went away, promising to get to work on the line suggested by Miss Pankridge, and next day he telephoned to Viner, asking him to go down to his offices in Bedford Row. Viner hurried off, and on arriving found Mr. Paul with a and on arriving found Mr. Paul with a cablegram before him. "'I sent a pretty long message to Melbourne to Ashton's old bankers as soon as I left you yesterday,' he said. 
I gave them the news of his murder and asked for certain information. Here's their answer. I rang you up as soon as I got it. Viner read the cablegram carefully. Deeply regret news. Ashton well known here, thirty years dealer in real estate. Respected, wealthy, quiet man, bachelor. Have made inquiries in quarters likely to know. Cannot trace anything about friend named Wickham. Ashton was away from Melbourne, up country, four years, some years ago. May have known Wickham then. Ashton left here end July by Maracibo from London. Was accompanied by two friends, Fosdick and Staffens. Please inform if can do more. What do you think of that? asked Mr. Paul. Not much in it, is there? There's the mention of two men who might know something of Ashton's habits, said Viner. If Fosdick and Staffens are still in England and were Ashton's friends, one would naturally conclude that he had seen them sometimes, yet we haven't heard of their ever going to his house. We can be quite certain that they never did from what the two ladies say, remarked Mr. Paul. Perhaps they don't live in London. I'll, ad I'll advertise for both. But now, here's another matter. I asked these people if they could tell me anything about Wickham, the father of this girl to whom Ashton's left this very considerable fortune. Well, you see, they can't. Now, it's a very curious thing, but Miss Wickham has no papers, has, in fact, nothing whatever to prove her identity. Nor have I. Ashton left nothing of that sort. I know no more, and she knows no more, than what he told both of us, that her father died when she was a mere child, her mother already being dead, that the father left her in Ashton's guardianship, and that Ashton, after sending her here to school, eventually came and took her to live with him. There isn't a single document, really, to show who she is, who her father was, or anything about her family. "'Is that very important?' asked Viner. "'It's decidedly odd.' said Mr. Paul. This affair seems to be getting more mysterious than ever. "'What's to be done next?' inquired Viner. "'Well, the newspapers are always very good about that,' answered the solicitor. "'I'm getting them to insert paragraphs asking the two men, Fosdick and Stephens, to come forward and tell us if they've seen anything of Ashton since he came to England. I'm also asking if anybody can tell us where Ashton was when he went away from home on that visit that Mrs. Killenhall spoke of. If—' Just then a clerk came into Mr. Paul's room, and bending down to him whispered a few words which evidently occasioned him great surprise. "'At once,' he said, "'bring them straight in, Parkinson. God bless me!' he exclaimed, turning to Viner. "'Here are the two men in question, Fosdick and Staffens. Saw our name in the paper as Ashton solicitors, and want to see me urgently.'" End of chapter 6 Speculations Chapter Seven of the Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter Seven. What was a secret? The two men who were presently ushered in were typical colonials, big, hefty fellows as yet in early middle age, alert, evidently prosperous if their attire and appointments were anything to go by, and each was obviously deeply interested in the occasion of his visit to Mr. Paul. Two pairs of quick eyes took in the old solicitor and his companion, and the elder of the men came forward in a business-like manner. "'Mr. Paul, I understand,' he said. 
I am Mr. Fosdick of Melbourne, Victoria. This is my friend, Mr. Stephens. Same place. Take a seat, Mr. Fosdick. Have this chair, Mr. Stephens, responded Mr. Paul. You wish to see me on business. That's so, answered Fosdick, as the two men seated themselves by the solicitor's desk. We saw your name in the newspapers this morning in connection with the murder of John Ashton. Now, we knew John Ashton. He was a Melbourne man, too, and we can tell something about him. So we came to you instead of the police. Because, Mr. Paul, what we can tell is maybe more a matter for a lawyer than for a policeman. It's mysterious. Gentlemen, said Mr. Paul, I'll be frank with you. I recognized your names as soon as my clerk announced them. Here's a cablegram which I have just received from Melbourne. You'll see your names mentioned in it. The two callers bent over the cablegram, and Fosdick looked up and nodded. Yes, that's right, he said. We came over with John Ashton in the Marikibo. We knew him pretty well before that. Most folk in Melbourne did. But of course we were thrown into his company on board ship, rather more than we'd ever been before, and we very much regret to hear of what's happened to him. You say there is something you can tell? observed Mr. Paul. If it's anything that will help to solve the mystery of this murder, for there is a mystery, I shall be very glad to hear it. Fosdick and Stephens glanced at each other, and then at Viner, who sat a little in Mr. Paul's rear. "'Partner of yours?' asked Fosdick. "'Not at all. This gentleman,' replied Mr. Paul, "'is Mr. Viner. It was he who found Ashton's dead body. They were neighbors.' "'Well, you found the body of a very worthy man, sir.' remarked Fosdick gravely, and we'd like to do something toward finding the man who killed him, for we don't think it was this young fellow who's charged with it, nor that robbery was the motive. We think John Ashton was removed, put out of the way. Why now? asked Mr. Paul. I'll tell you, replied Fosdick. My friend Stephens here is a man of few words. He credits me with more talkativeness than he'll lay claim to, so I'm to tell the tale. There mayn't be much in it, and there may be a lot. We think there's a big lot. But this is what it comes to. Ashton was a close man, a reserved man. However, one night, when the three of us were having a quiet cigar in a corner of the smoking saloon in the Maricibo, he opened out to us a bit. We had been talking about getting over to England. We'd all three emigrated, you'll understand, when we were very young. And the talk ran on what we'd do. Fosdick and Stephens, D.C., were only on a visit, which is just coming to an end, Mr. Paul. We sail home in a day or two, but Ashton was returning home for good, and he said to us, in a sort of burst of confidence that he'd have plenty to do when he landed, he said that he was in possession, sole possession, of a most extraordinary secret, the revelation of which would affect one of the first families in England— and he was going to bring it out as soon as he'd got settled down in London. Well, you may be surprised, but that's all. "'All you can tell me!' exclaimed Mr. Polly. "'All, but we can see plenty in it,' said Fosdick. "'Our notion is that Ashton was murdered by somebody who didn't want that secret to come out. Now, you see, if events don't prove we're right.' "'Gentlemen,' said Mr. Polly, "'allow me to ask you a few questions.' "'Many as you please, sir,' assented Fosdick. "'We'll answer anything.' "'He didn't tell you what the secret was?' asked Mr. Polly. "'No, he said we'd know more about it in time,' replied Fosdick. "'It would possibly lead to legal proceedings,' he said. 
In that case it would be one of the most celebrated cases ever known. And romantic, added Stephen, speaking for the first time. Romantic, that was the term he used. And romantic, quite so, assented Fosdick. Celebrated and romantic, those were the words. But, in any case, he said, whether it got to law matters or not, it couldn't fail to be in the papers, and we should read all about it in due time. And you know no more than that, inquired Mr. Polly. Nothing, said Fosdick with decision. Mr. Polly looked at Viner as if to seek some inspiration, and Viner took up the work of examination. "'Do you know anything of Mr. Ashton's movements since he came to London?' he asked. "'Next to nothing,' replied Fosdick. "'Ashton left the Maracaibo at Naples and came overland. He wanted to put in a day or two in Rome and a day or two in Paris. We came round by sea to Tilbury.' Then Stephens and I separated. He went to see his people in Scotland, and I went to mine in Lancashire. We met Stephens and I in London here last week, and we saw Ashton for just a few minutes down in the city. Ah! exclaimed Mr. Polly. You have seen him, then. Did anything happen? You mean relating to what he told us? said Fosdick. Well, no more than I asked him, sort of jokingly, how the secret was, and he said it was just about to come out, and we must watch the papers. There was a remark he made, observed Stephens. He said it would be of just as much interest, perhaps of far more, to our colonial papers as to the English. Yes, he said that, agreed Fosdick. He knew, you see, that we were just about setting off home. He didn't ask you to his house, inquired Mr. Paul. "'That was mentioned, but we couldn't fix dates,' replied Fosdick. "'However, we told him we were both coming over again on business next year, and we'd come and see him then.' Mr. Polly spread out his hands with a gesture of helplessness. "'We're as wise as ever!' he exclaimed. "'No,' said Fosdick emphatically. "'Wiser. The man had a secret affecting powerful interests. Many a man's been put away for having a secret.' Mr. Polly put his fingertips together and looked thoughtfully at his elder visitor. "'Well, there's a good deal in that,' he said at last. "'Now, while you're here, perhaps you can tell me something else about Ashton. How long have you known him?' "'Ever since we were lads,' answered Fosdick readily. "'He was a grown man then, though. Stephens and I are about forty. Ashton was sixty. "'You've always known of him as a townsman of Melbourne?' "'That's so. We were taken out there when we were about ten or twelve. Ashton lived near where we settled down. He was a speculator in property, made his money in buying and selling lots. "'Was he well known?' "'Everybody knew Ashton.' "'Did you ever know of his having a friend named Wickham?' inquired Mr. Paul, with a side glance at Viner. "'Think carefully now.' But Fosdick shook his head, and Stephens shook his. "'Never heard the name?' said Fosdick. "'Did you ever hear Ashton mention the name?' asked Mr. Paul. "'Never. Never heard him mention it on board ship when he was coming home?' "'No, never.' "'Well,' said Mr. Polly, "'I happen to know that Ashton some years ago had a very particular friend named Wickham out in Australia.' A sudden light came into Fosdick's keen grey-blue eyes. "'Ah,' he said, "'I can tell how that may be.' A good many years ago, when we were just familiar enough with Melbourne to know certain people in it, I remember that Ashton was away up-country for some time, as that cablegram says. Most likely he knew this Wickham, then. Is that the Wickham mentioned there?' "'It is,' assented Mr. Paul, "'and I want to know who he was.' 
"'Glad to set any inquiries going for you when we get back,' said Fosdick. "'We sail in two days.' "'Gentlemen,' answered Mr. Polly gravely, "'it takes, I believe, five or six weeks to reach Australia. "'By the time you get there, this unfortunate fellow Hyde, "'who's charged with the murder of Ashton on evidence "'that is quite sufficient to satisfy an average British jury, "'will probably have been tried, convicted, and hanged. "'No, I'm afraid we must act at once if we're to help him, "'as Mr. Viner here is very anxious to do. "'And there's something you can do. "'The coroner's inquest is to be held to-morrow.' "'Go there and volunteer the evidence you've just told us. "'It mayn't do a scrap of good, "'but it will introduce an element of doubt into the case against Hyde, "'and that will benefit him.' "'Tomorrow,' said Fosdick, "'we'll do it. "'Give us the time and place. "'We'll be there, Mr. Paul. "'I see your point, sir, to introduce the idea "'that there's more to this than the police think.' "'When the two callers had gone, Mr. Polly turned to Viner. "'Now, my friend,' he said, "'you've already sent your own solicitor to Hyde, haven't you?' "'Who is he, by the way?' "'Feltham of Chancery Lane,' replied Viner. "'Excellent man. "'Now,' said Mr. Pauline, "'you go to Feltham and tell him what these two Australians have just told us, "'and say that, in my opinion, it will be well worth while, "'in his client's interest, to develop their evidence for all it's worth. "'That theory of Fosdick's may have a great deal in it. "'And another thing, Feltham must insist on Hyde being present at the inquest tomorrow "'and giving evidence. "'That, I say, must be done.' "'Hyde must make his story public as soon as possible. "'He must be brought to the inquest. "'He'll be warned by the coroner, of course, "'that he's not bound to give any evidence at all, "'but he must go into the box and tell, on oath, "'all that he told you and Drillford. "'Now be off to Feltham and insist on all this being done.' "'Viner went away to Chancery Lane more puzzled than ever. "'What was this secret affecting one of the first families in England, "'of which Ashton had told his two Melbourne friends?' How was it, if legal proceedings were likely to arise out of it, that Ashton had not told Paul about it? Was it possible that he had gone to some other solicitor? If so, why didn't he come forward? And what, too, was this mystery about Miss Wickham and her father? Why, as Polly had remarked, there were no papers or documents concerning her to be found anywhere. Had she anything to do with the secret? It seemed to him that the confusion was becoming more confounded. But the first thing to do was to save Hyde— and he was relieved to see that Feltham jumped at Paul's suggestion. "'Good,' said Feltham. "'Of course I'll have Hyde brought up at the inquest, and he shall tell his story. And we'll save this Australian chaps until Hyde's been in the box. I do wish Hyde himself could tell us more about that man whom he saw leaving the passage. Of course that man is the actual murderer.' "'You think that?' asked Viner. "'Don't doubt it for one moment, and a cool calculating hand, too,' declared Feltham. "'A man who knew what he was doing. "'How long do you suppose it would take to strike the life out of a man "'and to snatch a few valuables from his clothing? Pooh! to a hand such as this evidently was, a minute. "'Then he walks calmly away. "'And who is he? "'But we're not doing badly.' "'That, too, was Viner's impression "'when he walked out of the coroner's court next day. "'After having endured its close and sordid atmosphere "'for four long hours, he felt—' more from intuition than from anything tangible that things had gone well for Hyde. One fact was plain, nothing more could be brought out against Hyde, either there, when the inquest was resumed a week later, or before the magistrate, or before a judge and jury. Every scrap of evidence against him was produced before the coroner. It was obvious that the police could rake up no more, unless indeed they could prove him to have hidden Ashton's remaining valuable somewhere, which was ostensibly an impossibility and the evidence of Hyde himself had impressed the court. 
Two days' rest and refreshment, even in a prison and on prison fare, had pulled him together, and he had given his evidence clearly and confidently. Viner had seen that the people were impressed by it. They had been impressed, too, by the evidence volunteered by the two Australians. And when the coroner announced that he should adjourn the inquiry for a week, the folk who had crowded the court went away asking each other not if Hyde was guilty, but what was this secret of which Ashton had boasted the possession. Drillford caught Viner up as he walked down the street and smiled grimly at him. "'Well, you're doing your best for him, and no mistake, Mr. Viner,' he said. "'He's a lucky chap to have found such a friend.' "'He's as innocent as I am,' answered Viner. "'Look here, if you police want to do justice, why don't you try to track the man whom Hyde has told of?' "'What clue have we?' exclaimed Drillford almost contemptuously. "'A tall man in black clothes, muffled to his eyes. But I'll tell you what, Mr. Viner,' he added with a grin, "'as you're so confident, why don't you find him?' "'Perhaps I shall,' said Viner quietly. He meant what he said, and he was thinking deeply what might be done towards accomplishing his desires, when, later in the afternoon, Mr. Paul rang him up on the telephone. "'Run down,' said Mr. Paul cheerily. "'There's a new development.'" End of chapter 7 What was the secret? Chapter 8 of The Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter 8 News from Arcadia. When Viner, half an hour later, walked into the waiting-room at Crawl, Paul, and Rattenbury's, he was aware of a modestly attired young woman, evidently from her dress and appearance, a country girl who sat shyly turning over the pages of an illustrated paper. And as soon as he got into Paul's private room, the old solicitor jerked his thumb at the door by which Viner had entered, and smiled significantly. "'See that girl outside?' he asked. She's the reason of my ringing you up. Yes, said Viner, but what? Why? More mystery? Don't know, said Mr. Paul. I've kept her story till you came. She turned up here about three quarters of an hour ago and said that her grandmother, who keeps an inn at Market Stoke in Buckinghamshire, had seen the paragraph in the papers this morning in which I asked if anybody could give any information about Mr. John Ashton's movements and had immediately sent her off to me, with a message that a gentleman of that name stayed at their house for a few days some weeks since, and that if I would send somebody over there she, the grandmother, could give some particulars about him. So that solves the question we were talking of at Markendale Square as to where Ashton went during the absence Mrs. Killenhall told us of. "'If this is the same Ashton,' suggested Viner. "'We'll soon decide that.' answered Mr. Paul, as he touched the bell on his desk. I purposely awaited your coming before hearing what this young woman had to tell. Now, my dear, he continued, as a clerk brought the girl into the room, take a chair and tell me what your message is, more particularly. You're from Marketstoke, eh? Just so, and your grandmother, who sent you here, keeps an inn there? Yes, sir, the Ellingham Arms replied the girl as she sat down and glanced a little nervously at her two interviewers. "'To be sure. And your grandmother's name is—what?' "'Hannah Summers, sir.' 
Mrs. Hannah Summers. Grandfather living? No, sir. Very well. Mrs. Hannah Summers, landlady at the Ellingham Arms, Market Stoke, in Buckinghamshire. Now then, but what's your name, my dear? Lucy Summers, sir. Very pretty name, I'm sure. Well, and what's the message your grandmother sent me? I want this gentleman to hear it. Grandmother wishes me to say, sir, that we read the piece in the paper this morning asking if anybody could give you any news about a Mr. John Ashton, and that as we had a gentleman of that name staying with us for three or four days some weeks since, she sent me to tell you, and to say that if you would send somebody down to see her, she could give some information about him. Very clearly put, my dear, much obliged to you said Mr. Paul. Now, I suppose you were at the Ellingham Arms when this Mr. Ashton came there? Oh, yes, sir. I lived there. To be sure. Now, what sort of man was he, in appearance? A tall, big gentleman, sir, with a beard, going a little grey. He was wearing a blue serge suit. Mr. Paul nodded at Viner. Seems like our man, he remarked. Now, he went on, turning again to Lucy Summers, you say he stayed there three or four days, but what did he do with himself while he was there? He spent a good deal of time about the church, sir, answered the girl, and he was at Ellingham Park a good deal. Whose place is that? interrupted Mr. Paul. Lord Ellingham, sir. Do you mean that Mr. Ashton called on Lord Ellingham, or what? No, sir, because Lord Ellingham wasn't there. He scarcely ever is there replied lucy summers i mean that mr ashton went into the park a good deal and looked over the house a good many people come to see ellingham park sir well and what else asked mr paul did he go to see people in the town at all i don't know sir but he was out most of the day and at night he talked a great deal with my grandmother in her sitting-room i think added the girl with a glance which took in both listeners I think that's what she wants to tell about. She would have come here herself, but she's over seventy and doesn't like traveling. Mr. Paul turned to Viner. Now we know where we are, he said. There's no doubt that this is our Ashton, and that Mrs. Summers has something she can tell about him. Viner, I suggest that you and I go down to Market Stoke this afternoon. You've accommodations for a couple of gentlemen, I suppose, my dear, he added, turning to the girl couple of nice bedrooms and a bit of dinner, eh? Oh, yes, sir, replied Lucy Summers. We constantly have gentlemen there, sir. Very well, said Mr. Paul. Now, then, you run away home to Market Stoke, my dear. And tell your grandmother that I'm very much obliged to her, and that I am coming down this evening with this gentleman, Mr. Viner, and that we shall be obliged if she shall have a nice, plain, well-cooked dinner ready for us at half-past seven. We shall come in my motor-car. You can put that up for the night, and my driver, too? Very well, that's settled. Now, come along, and one of my clerks shall get you a cab to your station. Great Central, isn't it? All right. Mind you get yourself a cup of tea before going home. Viner... Paul continued, when he had taken the girl into the outer office. We can easily run down to Market Stoke in under two hours. I'll call for you at your house at half-past five. That'll give us time to wash away the dirt before our dinner, and then we'll hear what this old lady has to tell. 
Viner, who was musing somewhat vaguely over these curious developments, looked at Mr. Paul as if in speculation about his evident optimism. "'You think we shall hear something worth hearing?' he asked. "'I should say we probably shall,' replied Mr. Paul. "'Put things together. Ashton goes away as soon as he's got settled down in Markendale Square, on a somewhat mysterious journey. Now we hear that he had a secret. Perhaps something relating to that secret is mixed up with his visit to Market Stoke.' depend upon it an old woman of over seventy especially a landlady of a country town inn whose wits are presumably pretty sharp wouldn't send for me unless she'd something to tell before midnight my dear sir we may have learnt a good deal viner picked up his hat i'll be ready for you at half-past five he said then halfway to the door he turned with a question by the by he added you wouldn't like me to tell the two ladies that we've found out where ashton went when he was away "'I think not, until we've found out why he went away,' answered the old lawyer with a significant smile. "'We may draw the covert blank, you know, after all, when we've some definite news.' Viner nodded, went out into the afternoon calm of Bedford Row, as he walked up it staring mechanically at the old-fashioned red-brick fronts. He wondered how many curious secrets had been talked over and perhaps unraveled in the numerous legal sanctuaries approached through those open doors. Were there often as strange ones as that upon which he had so unexpectedly stumbled? And when they first came into the arena of thought and speculation, did they arouse as much perplexity and mental exercise as was now being set up in him? Did every secret, too, possibly endanger a man's life as his old schoolfellows was being endangered? He had no particular affection or friendship for Langston Hyde, of whom, indeed, he had known very little at school, but he had an absolute conviction that he was innocent of murder, and that conviction had already aroused in him a passionate determination to outwit the police. He had been quick to see through Drillford's plans. There was a case, a strong prima facie case against Hyde, and the police would work it up for all they were worth. Failing proofs in other directions, failing the discovery of the real murderer, how was that case going to be upset? And how was it likely that he and Paul were going to find any really important evidence in an obscure Buckinghamshire market town? He jumped into a cab at the top of Bedford Row and hastened back to Markendale Square to pack a bag and prepare for his journey. Miss Pankridge called him from the drawing-room as he was running upstairs. He turned into the room to find her in company with two ladies— dismal, pathetic figures in very plain and obviously countrified garments, both in tears and evident great distress, who, as Viner walked in, rose from their chairs and gazed at him sadly and wistfully. They reminded him at once of the type of spinster found in quiet, unpretentious cottages in out-of-the-way villages, the neither young nor old women who live on circumscribed means and are painfully shy of the rude world outside. And before either he or Miss Pankridge could speak, the elder of the two broke into an eager exclamation. "'Oh, Mr. Viner! We are Langston's sisters, and we are so grateful to you! And, oh, do you think you can save him?' Viner was quick to seize the situation. He said a soothing word or two, begged his visitors to sit down again, and whispered to Miss Pankridge to ring for tea. "'You have come to town to-day?' he asked. "'We left home very, very early this morning,' replied the elder sister. "'We learned this dreadful news last night in the evening paper. "'We came away at four o'clock this morning. "'We live in Durham, Mr. Viner, and we have been to Mr. Felpham's office this afternoon. 
He told us how kind you had been in engaging his services for our unfortunate brother, and we came to thank you. But, oh, do you think there is any chance for him? Every chance, declared Viner, pretending more conviction than he felt. Don't let yourselves be cast down. We'll move heaven and earth to prove that he's wrongly accused. I gather, if you don't mind my asking, that your brother has been out of touch with you for some time. The two sisters exchanged mournful glances. "'We had not heard anything of Langton for some years,' replied the elder. "'He is much, much younger than ourselves, and perhaps we are too staid and old-fashioned for him. But if we had known that he was in want—oh, dear me, we are not at all well-to-do, Mr. Viner, but we would have sacrificed anything. Mr. Feltham says that we shall be allowed to visit him. He is going to arrange for us to do so. And, of course, we must remain in London until this terrible business is over. We came prepared for that.' "'Prepared for that,' replied the other sister, who seemed to be a fainter replica of the elder. "'Yes, prepared, of course, Mr. Viner. "'Now that we have found Langton, though, in such painful circumstances,' said the first speaker, "'we must stand by him. "'We must find some quiet lodging and settle down to help. "'We cannot let the burden fall on you, Mr. Viner.' Viner glanced at Miss Pankridge. They were quick to understand each other, these two, and he knew at once that Miss Pankridge saw what was in his mind. "'You must stay with us,' he said, turning to the two mournful figures. "'We have any amount of room in this house, and we shall be only too glad.' "'Oh, but that is too—' began both ladies. "'I insist,' said Viner, with a smile. "'We both insist.' echoed Miss Pankridge. "'We are both given to having our own way, too, so say no more about it. We are all in the same boat just now, and its name is Mystery, and we must pull together until we're in harbour.' "'Listen,' said Viner, "'I have to go away to-night on a matter closely connected with this affair. Let me leave you in my aunt's charge, and to-morrow I may be able to give you some cheering news. You'll be much more comfortable here than in any lodgings or hotel, and—' "'And I should like to do something for Hyde. "'We're old schoolfellows, you know.' "'Then he escaped from the room and made ready for his journey, "'and at half-past five came Mr. Paul in his private car "'and carried him off into the dark. "'An hour and a half later the car rolled smoothly "'into the main street of a quiet, wholly Arcadian little town, "'and pulled up before an old-fashioned, many-gabled house "'over the door of which was set up one of those ancient signs "'which, in such places, display the coat of arms of the lord of the manor. "'Viner had just time to glance around him, "'and in a clear starlit evening, to see the high tower of a church, "'the timbered fronts of old houses, and many a tall, venerable tree, "'before following Mr. Paul into a stone hall, "'filled with dark oak cabinets and bright with old brass and pewter, on the open hearth of which burned a fine and cheery fire of logs. "'Excellent!' muttered the old lawyer as he began to take off his multitudinous wraps. "'A real bit of the real old England. Viner, if the dinner is as good as this promises, I shall be glad we've come, whatever the occasion.' "'Here's the landlady, I suppose,' said Viner as a door opened. A tall, silver-haired old woman, surprisingly active and vivacious in spite of her evident age, came forward with a polite, old-fashioned bow. She wore a silk gown and a silk apron and a smart cap, and her still bright eyes took in the two visitors at a glance. "'Your servant, gentlemen,' she said. "'Your rooms are ready, and dinner will be ready, too, when you are. This way, if you please.' "'A very fine old house, this, ma'am,' 
observed Mr. Paul, as they followed her up a curious staircase, all nooks and corners. "'And you have, no doubt, been long in it.' "'Born in it, sir,' said the landlady with a laugh. "'Our family on one side has been here two hundred years. "'This is your room, sir. This is your friend's.' She paused, and with a significant look pointed to another door. "'That,' she said, "'is the room which Mr. Ashton had when he was here.' "'Ah, we are very anxious to know what you can tell us about him, ma'am,' said Mr. Paul. Mrs. Summers paused, and again glanced significantly at her visitors. "'I wish I knew the meaning of what I shall tell you.' she answered. End of chapter 8「On the principle that business should never be discussed when one is dining, Mr. Paul made no reference during dinner to the matter which had brought Viner and himself to the Ellingham Arms. He devoted all his attention and energies to the pleasures of the table. He praised the grilled soles and roast mutton, and grew enthusiastic over some old burgundy which Mrs. Summer strongly recommended. But when dinner was over, and he had drunk a glass or two of old port, his eyes began to turn toward the door of the quaint little parlour in which he and Viner had been installed, and to which the landlady had promised to come. "'I confess I'm unusually curious about what we're going to hear, Viner,' he said, as he drew out a well-filled cigar-case. "'There's an atmosphere of mystery about our presence and our surroundings that's like an apparitive to an already hungry man.' Ashton, poor fellow, comes over to this quiet, out-of-the-way place. Why, we don't know. What he does here we don't know yet, but all the circumstances up to now seem to point to secrecy, if not to absolute romance and adventure. "'Is it going, after all, to clear up the mystery of his death?' asked Viner. "'That's what concerns me. I'm afraid I'm a bit indifferent to the rest of it. What particular romance do you think could be attached to the mere fact that Ashton paid a three days' visit to Marketstoke?' Mr. Paul drew out a well-filled cigar-case. "'In my profession,' he answered, "'we hear a great deal more of romance than most folk could imagine. Now, here's a man who returns to this country from a long residence in Australia. The first thing he does, after getting settled down in London, is to visit Marketstoke. Why Marketstoke?' "'Marketstoke is an obscure place. There are at least five or six towns in this very county that are better known. Again, I say, why Marketstoke?' And why this, the very first place in England? For what reason? Now, as a lawyer, a reason does suggest itself to me. I've been thinking about it ever since that rosy-cheeked lass called at my office this afternoon. What does the man who's been away from his native land for the best part of his life do, as a rule, when at last he sets foot on it again, eh? I'm not greatly experienced, replied Viner, smiling at the old solicitor's professional enthusiasm. What does he do, usually? "'Makes his way as soon as possible to his native place!' exclaimed Mr. Paul, with an expressive flourish of his cigar. "'That, usually, is the first thing he thinks of. 
"'You're not old enough to remember the circumstances, my boy, "'but I have, of course, a very distinct recollection "'of the Tickbourne affair in the early seventies. "'Now, if you ever read the evidence in that cause célébré, "'you'll remember that the claimant, Orton, "'on arriving in England, posing as the missing heir, "'Sir Roger Tickbourne did a certain thing, "'the evidence of which, I can assure you, "'was not lost on the jury before whom he eventually came. "'Instead of going direct to Tickbourne, "'where you'd naturally have thought all his affection and interests rested, "'where did he go? To Whitechapel. Why? "'Because the Ortons were Whitechapel folk. "'The native place called him, do you see? "'The first thought he had on setting foot on English soil was Whitechapel.' "'Are you suggesting that Ashton was probably a native of Marketstoke?' asked Viner. "'I mean to find out, no matter what we hear from the landlady, "'if that name is to be found in the parish register here anyway,' answered Mr. Paul. "'You can be sure of this. Ashton came to this obscure country town for some special purpose. "'What was it? And had it anything to do with—did it lead up to—his murder? "'That—' "'A light tap at the door heralded the approach of Mrs. Summers.' "'That,' repeated Mr. Paul, as he jumped up from his chair and politely threw the door open, "'is what I mean to endeavour—endeavour, at any rate, to discover. "'Come in, ma'am,' he continued, gallantly motioning the old lady to the easiest chair in the room. "'We are very eager, indeed, to hear what you can tell us. Our cigars, now—' "'Pray don't mention them, sir,' responded Mrs. Summers. "'I hope you are quite comfortable, and that you are having everything you wish.' "'Nothing, ma'am, could be more pleasant and gratifying, as far as material comfort goes,' answered Mr. Paul with conviction. "'The dinner was excellent. Your wine is sound. This old room is a veritable haven. I wish we were visiting you under less sad conditions. And now about your recollections of this poor gentleman, ma'am.' The landlady laid a large book on the table, and opening it at a page where she, at she had placed a marker, pointed to a signature— "'That is the writing of the Mr. John Ashton who came here,' she said. "'He registered his name and address the day he came. There it is. "'John Ashton, 7 Markendale Square, London, W. "'You gentlemen will recognize it, perhaps?' Mr. Paul put up his glasses, glanced once at the open book, and turned to Viner with a confirmatory nod. "'That's Ashton's writing, without a doubt,' he said. "'It's a signature not to be forgotten when you've once seen it.' "'Well, that establishes the fact that he undoubtedly came here on that date. "'Now, ma'am, what can you tell us about him?' "'Mrs. Summers took the chair which Viner drew forward to the hearth "'and folded her hands over her silk apron. "'Well, sir,' she answered, "'a good deal. "'Mr. Ashton came here one Monday afternoon in a motor-car with his luggage "'and asked if I could give him rooms and accommodation for a few days.' "'Of course I could. He had this room, and the room appointed out upstairs, and he stayed here until Thursday, when he left soon after lunch. The same car came for him. And he hadn't been in the house an hour, gentlemen, before I wondered if he hadn't been here before.' "'Interesting, very,' said Mr. Paul. "'Now, why, ma'am, did you wonder that?' "'Well, sir,' replied Mrs. Summers, "'Because, after he'd looked around the house and seen his room upstairs, he went out to the front door, and then I followed him to ask if he had any particular wishes about his dinner that evening. Our front door, as you will see in the morning, fronts the market square, and from it you can see about all there is to see of the town. He was standing at the door, under the porch, 
looking all around him, and I overheard him talking to himself as I went up behind him. I, he was saying, as he looked this way and that, there's the old church and the old moot hall and the old marketplace and the old gabled and thatched houses, and even the old town pump, they haven't changed a bit, I reckon, in all these years. Then he caught sight of me and he smiled. Not many changes in this old place, landlady, in your time, he said pleasantly. No, sir, I answered. We don't change much in even a hundred years in Market Stoke. No, he said and shook his head. No, the change is in men, in men. And then he suddenly sat straight off across the square to the churchyard. You've known Market Stoke before, I said to myself. You didn't ask him that? inquired Mr. Paul eagerly. I didn't, sir, replied Mrs. Summers. I never asked him a question all the time he was here. I thought that if I was correct in what I fancied, I should hear him say something. But he never did say anything of that sort. All the same, I felt more and more certain that he did know the place. And during the time he was here, he went about in it in a fashion that convinced me that my ideas were right. He was in and around the church a great deal. The vicar and the parish clerk can tell you more about his visits there than I can. And he was at the old moot hall several times, looking over certain old things they keep there. And he visited Ellingham Park twice, and was shown over the house. And before he had been here two days, I came to a certain conclusion about him, and I've had it ever since, though he never said one word, or did one thing that could positively confirm me in it. Yes, exclaimed Mr. Paul, and that, ma'am, was— that he was somebody who disappeared from Marketstoke thirty-five years ago, answered the landlady, disappeared completely, and has never been heard of from that day to this. Mr. Paul turned slowly and looked at Viner. He nodded his head several times, then turned to Mrs. Summers and regarded her fixedly. And that somebody, he asked in hushed accents, who was he? The landlady smoothed her silk apron and shook her head. "'It's a long story, sir,' she answered. "'I think you must have heard something of it, though, to be sure, it was not talked of much at the time, and didn't become public until legal proceedings became necessary some years ago. You're aware, of course, that just outside the town here is Ellingham Park, the seat of the Earl of Ellingham. Well, what I have to tell you has to do with them, and I shall have to go back a good way.' Thirty-five years ago the head of the family was a seventh earl, who was then getting on in life. He was a very overbearing, harsh old gentleman, not at all liked. The people here in Marketstoke, nearly all of them his tenants, used to be perpetually at variance with him about something or other. He was the sort of man who wanted to have his own way about everything. And he had trouble at home. At any rate, with his elder son, he only had two sons and no daughter. And about the time I'm talking of, it came to a head— Nobody ever knew exactly what it was all about, but it was well known that Lord Marketstoke, that was the elder son's name, and his father, the Earl, were at cross-purposes, if not actually at daggers drawn, about something or other. And when Lord Marketstoke was about twenty-five or twenty-six, there was a great quarrel between them. It broke out one night after dinner. The servants heard angry words between them. That night, gentlemen, Lord Marketstoke left the house and set off to London, and from that day to this he has never been heard of or seen again, hereabouts at any rate. Mr. Paul, who was listening with the deepest interest and attention, glanced at Viner as if to entreat the same care on his part. "'I do remember something of this, now I come to think of it,' he said. "'There were some legal proceedings in connection with this disappearance, I believe, some years ago.' "'Yes, sir, they were in the newspapers,' asserted the old landlady. 
"'But, of course, those of us about here knew of how things stood long before that. Lord Marketstoke went away, as I have said. It was known that he had money of his own, that had come to him from his mother, who had died years before all this. But it wasn't known where he went. Some said he'd gone to the colonies, some said to America. And at one time there was a rumour that he had taken another name and joined some foreign army, and been killed in its service.' Anyway, nobody ever heard a word of him. Mr. Marcherson, who was steward at Ellingham Park for over forty years—he died last year, a very old man—assured me that from the day on which Lord Marketstoke left his father's house, not one word of him, not a breath, ever reached any of those he'd left behind him. There was absolute silence. He couldn't have disappeared more completely if they'd laid him in the family vault in Marketstoke Church." "'And evident intention to disappear,' observed Mr. Paul. "'You'll mark that, Viner. It's important. "'Well, ma'am,' he added, turning again to Mrs. Summers, "'and what happened next?' "'Well, sir, there was nothing much happened,' continued the landlady. "'Matters went on in pretty much the usual way. "'The old earl got older, of course, and his temper got worse.' Mr. Marcherson assured me that he was never known to mention his missing son to anybody.' And in the end, perhaps about fifteen years after Lord Marketstoke had gone away, he died. And then there was no end of trouble and bother. The Earl had left no will, at any rate, no will could be found, and no lawyer could be heard of who had ever made one. And, of course, nobody knew where the new Earl was, nor even if he was alive or dead. There were advertisements sent out all over the world. Mr. Marcherson told me that they were translated into I don't know how many foreign languages, and published in every quarter of the globe, asking for news of him and stating that his father was dead. That was done for some time. "'With no result?' asked Mr. Paul. "'No result whatever, sir. I understand that the family solicitors never had one single reply,' answered Mrs. Summers. I understand, too, that for some time before the old Earl's death they'd been trying to trace Lord Marketstoke from his last known movements, but that had failed, too. He had chambers in London, and he kept a manservant there. The manservant could only say that on the night on which his young master left Ellingham Park, he returned to his chambers, went to bed, and had gone, when he, the manservant, rose in the morning. No, sir, all the efforts had advertisements were no good whatever, and after some time, some considerable time, the younger brother, the Honourable Charles Cave Gray— Cave Gray, is that the family name? interrupted Mr. Paul. That's the family name, sir, Cave Gray, replied Mrs. Summers, one of the oldest families in these parts, sir, the earldom dates from Queen Anne. Well, the Honourable Charles Cavegray and his solicitors, of course, came to the conclusion that Lord Marketstoke was dead, and so I don't understand the legal niceties, gentlemen, but they went to the courts to get something done which presumed his death and let Mr. Charles come into the title and estates, and in the end that had been done, and Mr. Charles became the eighth Earl of Ellingham. I remember it now, muttered Mr. Paul. Yes, curious case, but it was proved to the court, I recollect, that everything possible had been done to find the missing heir, and without result. Just so, sir, and so Mr. Charles succeeded, asserted Mrs. Summers. He was a very nice, pleasant man, not a bit like his father, a very good and considerate landlord, and much respected, but he's gone now, dead three years ago, and his son, a young man of twenty-two or three, succeeded him. That's the present earl, gentlemen, and of him we see very little— he scarcely ever stayed at Ellingham Park, except for a bit of shooting, since he came to the title. 
"'And now,' she concluded, with a shrewd glance at the old lawyer, "'I wonder if you see, sir, that it was that came into my mind, "'when this Mr. John Ashton came here a few weeks ago, "'especially after I heard him say what he did, "'and after I saw how he was spending his time here?' "'I've no inkling, ma'am, I've no inkling,' said Mr. Paul. "'You wondered?' "'I wondered,' murmured Mrs. Summers, bending closer to her listeners. "'If the man who called himself John Ashton wasn't in reality the long-lost Lord Marketstoke.'" End of chapter 9 Looking Backward Chapter Ten of The Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter Ten The Parish Register. Mr. Paul, after a glance at Viner, which seemed to be full of many meanings, bent forward in his chair and laid a hand on the old landlady's arm. "'Now, have you said as much as that to anybody before?' he asked, ecking her significantly. "'Have you mentioned it to your neighbors, for instance, or to any one in the town?' "'No, sir,' declared Mrs. Summers promptly. "'Not to a soul. I am given to keeping my ideas to myself, especially on matters of importance. There is no one here in Marketstoke that I would have mentioned such a thing to, now that the late steward, Mr. Marcherson, is dead. I shouldn't have mentioned it to you two gentlemen if it hadn't been for this dreadful news in the papers. No, I've kept my thoughts at home.' "'Wise woman,' said Mr. Paul, "'but now let me ask you a few questions.' "'Did you know this Lord Marketstoke before he disappeared?' "'I only saw him two or three times,' replied the landlady. "'It was seldom that he came to Ellingham Park after his majority. "'Of course I saw him a good deal when he was a mere boy. "'But after he was grown up, only, as I say, a very few times.' "'But you remember him?' suggested Mr. Paul. "'Oh, very well indeed,' said Mrs. Summers. I saw him last a day or two before he went away for good. Well, now, did you think you recognized anything of him, making allowance for the difference in age, in this man who called himself John Ashton? asked Mr. Paul, for that, of course, is important. Mr. Ashton, answered Mrs. Summers, was just such a man as Lord Marketstoke might have been expected to become. Height, build, all the cave greys that I've known were big men, color were alike. Of course, Mr. Ashton had a beard, slightly gray, but he was a gray-haired man. All the family had crown hair. The present Lord Ellingham is crown-haired. And Mr. Ashton had gray eyes. Every cave gray that I remember was gray-eyed. I should say that Mr. Ashton was just what I should have expected Lord Marketstoke to be at sixty. "'I suppose Ashton never said or did anything here to reveal his secret, if he had one?' asked Mr. Paul, after a moment's thoughtful pause. "'Oh, nothing,' replied Mrs. Summers. "'He occupied himself, as I tell you, while he was here, and finally he went away in the car in which he had come, saying that he had greatly enjoyed his stay, and that we should see him again some time. No, he never said anything about himself, that is.' But he asked me several questions. I used to talk to him sometimes of an evening about the present Lord Ellingham. What sort of questions? 
inquired Mr. Pawle. "'Oh, as to what sort of young man he was, and if he was a good landlord, and so on,' replied Mrs. Summers. "'And I purposely told him about the disappearance of thirty-five years ago, just to see what he would say about it.' "'Ah, and what did he say?' asked Mr. Pawle. "'Nothing except that it was extraordinary how people could disappear in this world,' said Mrs. Summers. "'Whether he was interested or not, he didn't show it.' "'Probably felt that he knew more about it than you did,' chuckled the old solicitor. "'Well, ma'am, we're much obliged to you. Now take my advice and keep to your very excellent plan of saying nothing. Tomorrow morning we will just have a look into certain things, and see if we can discover anything really pertinent, and you shall know what conclusion we come to. Viner,' Paul went on, when the old landlady had left them alone, "'what do you think of this extraordinary story?' Upon my word, I think it quite possible that the old lady's theory might be right, and that Ashton may really have been the missing Lord Marketstoke. "'You think it probable that a man who was heir to an English earldom and to considerable estates could disappear like that for so many years, and then reappear?' asked Viner. "'I won't discuss the probability,' answered Mr. Paul, "'but that it's possible I should steadily affirm.' I've known several very extraordinary cases of disappearance. In this particular instance, granting things to be, as Mrs. Summers suggests, see how easy the whole thing is. This young man disappears. He goes to a far-off colony under an assumed name. Nobody knows him. It is ten thousand to one against his being recognized by visitors from home. All the advertising in the world will fail to reveal his identity— the only person who knows who he is is himself, and if he refuses to speak, there you are. What surprises me, remarked Viner, is that a man who evidently lived a new life for thirty-five years and prospered most successfully in it should want to return to the old one. Ah, but you never know, said the old lawyer. Family feeling, old associations, loss of the old place, eh? As men get older, their thoughts turn fondly to the scenes and memories of their youth, Viner. If Ashton was really the Lord Marketstoke who disappeared, he may have come down here with no other thought than that of just revisiting his old home for sentimental reasons. He may not have had the slightest intention, for instance, of setting up a claim to the title and estates. I don't understand much about the legal aspect of this— said Viner, but I've been wondering about it while you and the landlady talked. Supposing Ashton to be the long-lost Lord Marketstoke, could he have established a claim such as you speak of? To be sure, answered Mr. Paul. Had he been able to prove that he was the real Simon Pure, he would have stepped into title and estates at once. Didn't the old lady say that the seventh earl died intestate? Very well, the holders since this time, that is to say, Charles, who— his brother's death being presumed, became eighth earl, and his son, the present holder, would have had to account for everything since the day of the seventh earl's death. When the seventh earl died, his elder son, Lord Marketstoke, ipso facto, stepped into his shoes, and if he were, or is, still alive, he's in them still. All he had to do at any moment after his father's death, no matter who had come into title and estates, was to step forward and say, "'Here I am. Now I want my rights.' "'A queer business altogether,' commented Viner. 
But whoever Ashton was, he's dead. And the thing that concerns me is this. If he really was Earl of Ellingham, do you think that fact's got anything to do with his murder? That's just what we want to find out, answered Mr. Paul eagerly. It's quite conceivable that he may have been murdered by somebody who had a particular interest in keeping him out of his rights. Such things have been known. I want to go into all that. But now here's another matter. If Ashton really was the missing Lord Marketstoke, who is this girl whom he put forward as his ward, to whom he's left his considerable fortune, and about whom nobody knows anything?' I've already told you there isn't a single paper or document about her that I can discover. Was he really her guardian? Has this anything to do with it? asked Viner. Does it come into things? Mr. Paul did not answer for a moment. He appeared to have struck a new vein of thought and to be exploring it deeply. In certain events it would come into it pretty strongly he muttered at last. I'll tell you why later on. Now I'm for bed, and first thing after breakfast in the morning. Viner, we'll go to work. Viner had little idea of what the old solicitor meant as regards going to work. It seemed to him that for all practical purposes they were already in a maze out of which there seemed no easy way, and he was not at all sure of what they were doing when, breakfast being over next morning, Mr. Paul conducted him across the square to the old four-square churchyard, and for half an hour walked him up one path and down another, and in and around the ancient yew-trees and gravestones. "'Do you know what I've been looking for, Viner?' asked Mr. Paul at last, as he turned towards the church porch. "'I was looking for something, you know.' "'Not the faintest notion,' answered Viner dismally. "'I wondered.' "'I was looking.' replied Mr. Paul, with a faint chuckle, to see if I could find any tombstones or monuments in this churchyard bearing the name Ashton. There isn't one. I take it from that significant fact that Ashton didn't come down here to visit the graves of his kindred. But now come into the church. Mrs. Summers told me this morning that there is a chapel here in which the Cave Gray family have been interred for two or three centuries. Let's have a look at it. Finer, who had a dilettante love of ancient architecture, was immediately lost in admiration of the fine old structure into which he and his companion presently stepped. He stood staring at the high rood, the fine old rood screen, the beauty of the clustered columns. Had he been alone, and on any other occasion, he would have spent the morning in wandering around nave and aisles and transepts. But Mr. Paul, severely practical, at once made for the northeast chapel— and Viner, after another glance round, was forced to follow him. "'The Ellingham Chapel,' whispered the old solicitor as they passed a fine old stone screen which Viner mentally registered as fifteenth century. "'No end of cave greys laid here. What a profusion of monuments!' Viner began to examine those monuments, as well as the gloom of the November morning and the dark painted glass of the windows would permit and before very long he turned to his companion, who was laboriously reading the inscription on a great box tomb, which stood against the north wall. "'I say,' he whispered, "'here's a curious fact which, in view of what we heard last night, may be of use to us.' "'What's that?' demanded Mr. Paul. 
Viner took him by the elbow and led him over to the south wall, on which was arranged a number of ancient tablets grouped around a great altar-tomb, whereupon were set up the painted effigies of a gentleman, his wife, and several sons and daughters, all in ruffs, kneeling one after the other, each growing less in size and stature, in the attitude of prayer. He pointed to the inscription on this, and from it to several of the smaller monuments. "'Look here,' he said. "'There are cave graves commemorated here from 1570 until 1820. No end of them, men and women. And now, see, there's a certain Christian name, a woman's name, which occurs over and over again. There it is, and there, and here, and here, and here again.' It's evidently been a favorite family name among the cave gray women for three hundred years at least. You see what it is? Avice. Mr. Paul peered at the various places to which his companion's finger pointed. Yes, he answered, I see it several times, as you say. Avice, yes? Miss Wickham's Christian name is Avice, said Viner. Mr. Paul started. God bless me! he exclaimed. So it is! I'd forgotten that. Dear me! Now that's very odd. Too odd, perhaps, to be a coincidence. Very interesting, indeed. Favorite family name, without a doubt. Viner silently went round the chapel, inspecting every monument its four walls sheltered. It occurs just nineteen times, he announced at last. Now, is it a coincidence that Miss Wickham's name should be Avis? Or is it that there's some connection between her and all these dead-and-gone avices? Very strange, admitted Mr. Paul. Viner will go next and have a look at the parish registers. But look here, not a word to parson or clerk about our business. We merely wish to make a search for a certain legal purpose, eh? Three hours later, Viner, heartily weary of turning over old registers full of crabbed writing, was glad when Mr. Paul closed the one on which he was engaged, intimated that he had seen all he wanted, paid the fees for his search, and whispered to his companion that they would go to lunch. "'Well,' asked Viner, as they walked across the square to the Ellington Arms, "'have we done anything?' "'Probably,' answered Mr. Paul, "'for you never know how these little matters might help.' We've established two facts, anyway. One, that there has never been any folk of the name of Ashton in this town since the registers came into being in 1567. The other, that the name Avis was a very favorite one indeed among the women of the Cave Gray family. And there's just another little fact which I discovered and said nothing about while the vicar and clerk were about. It may be nothing, and it may be something. What is it? asked Viner. "'Well,' answered Mr. Paul, pausing a few yards away from the porch of the hotel, and speaking in a confidential voice, "'it's this. In turning up the records of the Cave Gray family, as far as they are shown in their parish registers, I found that Stephen John Cave Gray, sixth Earl of Ellingham, married one Georgina Wickham. Now, is that another coincidence? There you get the two names in combination. Avice Wickham.' That particular Countess of Ellingham would, of course, be the grandmother of the Lord Marketstoke who disappeared. Did he think of her maiden name, Wickham, when he wanted a new one for himself? Possibly. 
and when he married and had a daughter did he think of the christian name so popular with his own women folk of previous generations and call his daughter avice and are market stoke and wickham and ashton all one and the same man upon my word it's a strange muddle exclaimed viner nothing as yet to what it will be remarked mr pawle sententiously come on i'm famishing let's lunch and then we'll go back to town another surprise awaited them when they walked into mr pawle's office in bedford row at four o'clock that afternoon a card lay on the old lawyer's blotting pad and after glancing at it he passed it to viner see that he said now who on earth is mr armistead ashton armistead of ruindale house rotten stall who left this he went on as a clerk entered the room with some letters a gentleman who called at three o'clock sir replied the clerk he said he's travelled specially from lancashire to see you about the ashton affair he's going to call again sir in fact concluded the clerk glancing into the anteroom i think he's here now bring him in commanded mr pawle he made a grimace at viner as the clerk disappeared you see how things develop he murmured what are we going to hear next End of chapter 10 The Parish Register What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.